Hello and welcome to The Pulse. Later in the show, we'll be looking at the impact of this week's attack at the LegCo building on the umbrella movement. We also ask whether the Shanghai Hong Kong Stock Connect is the gift to Hong Kong some have touted it as being. But first, its critics have accused the umbrella movement of damaging rule of law in Hong Kong. It's an accusation that's been denied by protesters who say that by being willing to be arrested for civil disobedience actions, they are complying with the rule of law. Pro-democracy figures go further and maintain that there is a difference between rule of law and rule by law. And it's the Chinese government's ruling on constitutional development and the Hong Kong government's actions that have eroded rule of law. Thursday morning in Mongkok, and it was business as usual at the protest sites. Protesters were quietly continuing their occupation. The police also seem relaxed, but this harmonious coexistence is unlikely to be sustainable. On Tuesday, bailiffs enforcing an injunction cleared an area outside Citic Tower in Admiralty. Meanwhile, the court granted Choi Lun Public Light Bus an injunction for clearing one part of the Mongkok occupation. Using private injunctions to stifle political protest is a tactic that's already been used elsewhere and against overseas Occupy movements. But there's been much discussion of whether the government should, so to speak, be subcontracting its job to private institutions and then using the police, who are a public resource, to enforce injunctions. This week, a former Chief Justice of the Court of Final Appeal, Andrew Lee, said that if protesters disregard the injunction order and refuse to leave the occupied area, they are in contempt of court. It makes no difference whether they turn themselves into the police afterwards. They are still breaking the law and undermining the rule of law. Benny Tai, an organizer of Occupy Central with Love and Peace and a law professor at Hong Kong University, this week wrote an article titled Do Not Step on the Shoulders of the Court. He wrote that as the government lacks credibility and realizes that if it uses force to clear the protest sites, more people will take to the streets, therefore it's riding on the judiciary's shoulders and using injunction orders to achieve its political goals. He argues that this shows a greater level of disrespect for the rule of law than occupying the streets. Well, with us in the studio is Michael Davis, who's a law professor at Hong Kong University. Michael Davis, the debate about the umbrella movement seems to have shifted very firmly onto the grounds of who's upholding the rule of law, who's defying the rule of law. Well, what's your take on this? I think it's very important to remember that the rule of law is mostly about how governments behave. It's the rule of law. And so the idea is uh, in long developed, in, in especially in British common law tradition, has been that the government is subject to the law, no one's above the law, applied in ordinary manner. Uh, ideas of justice and human rights are included because it's thought that those things are important for people to guard and protect the rule of law. Uh, and so in this episode here in Hong Kong, we've had uh, a, a white paper by the central government that really trashes the rule of law. It, it's it 
pretty much declares the central government above the law. Uh, that all authority is said to come from the central government. It's, it, they use the word sole authority and essentially said that they can do what they want. They can interpret the basic law as they want, that they have decided they're committed to certain promises in the basic law, but that those are not firm. And so this seemed to renege on the deal. And then they came along with the NPC Standing Committee decision in which the local government was very complicit uh, by filing a report that seemed to represent, misrepresent Hong Kong views. And, and there they give meaning to words that no one would recognize. No one in the world would think a vetted election is universal suffrage. And so with this liberty they've taken with the, the, their own powers and with interpreting the basic law, then I think Hong Kong people were perplexed. Where are the promises that were made to us? And so I think that's what's driving the movement. People break the law all the time. So breaking the law doesn't necessarily undermine the rule of law. You can imagine a situation of lawlessness where everyone's breaking the law and hurtling stones and so on and, and breaking down uh, you know, storefronts and so on where you could say uh, breaking the law itself was undermining the rule of law. But for the most part, we look to what government does in response to lawbreakers. If the courts issue orders and the law is enforced, then we say the rule of law is upheld. And so I think this is the, the sort of unevenness of who's responsible currently for uh, undermining the rule of law. Let, let me put to you the argument, and it's been made by the chief executive and, and actually more or less everybody else in the government camp. They're saying, well, you know, we tolerate protests here. Everyone has the right to protest. But there's a point at which protest ver verges into lawlessness mm -hmm. and that the protesters have crossed that point. Well, we'd have, that's a judgment you'd have to make, but I, I would think that level of lawlessness generally is more widespread than a couple sites. We're talking about a couple you know, acres of land, I guess, uh, in different locations in Hong Kong, and the protesters have been very peaceful. So the, the, the question of civil disobedience adds another complexity to all of this. It's quite known around the world that some of our most respected uh, past leaders have engaged in civil disobedience when they're trying to advance the, the notion of, of the rule of law, of democracy, and so on. Martin Luther King most famously uh, was given a court order at one time not to protest in Birmingham, Alabama. And, and so he was very reluctant to ignore the court order, but after thought about it, did ignored and was arrested. So the rule of law worked. I mean, he was given an order. He chose not to follow it. And oh. this brings us back to what the pro-government people are saying in Hong Kong, is that the protesters put themselves above the law. Right. And so ignoring a court order, I think, is problematic. So, But at the end of the day, people have gone to court. Court orders have been issued. So far, the protesters, when confronted with the bailiffs, stepped back and cleared the area where they were ordered to clear. Up until then, they were engaged in a process of appealing it or challenging it in what's called interlocutory because it was originally uh, only the plaintiffs present in court. Mm -hmm. So they did that, and some people question that. But at the end of the day, that itself is being subject to review and has gone to the court. So we're going to watch and see what happens. But law, we, what, what we're looking for is for the law to take its course. And so either the protesters will follow the orders or they'll be arrested. So in the spirit of the U.S. case of Martin Luther King, uh, a court would probably uphold their arrest.
So, so we don't say that undermines the rule of law if it actually takes place. And if, they take the consequences. Yeah, they take the consequences. The, the, the law, rule of law has been carried out. That's the way it works. And so I, I think this is why if I were to weigh the relative threat to the rule of law in this, I would tend to point fingers at the government. Even uh, Lord Goldsmith came to town recently, and he was invited by Mr. Tong to make a speech. Who, who, who's a former attorney general in, in, of, of, the, of in England. United England. In Scotland. Well, no, chief judge, in fact, wasn't yeah. he? Yes. Well, he was the attorney general. Mm. Uh, and it's interesting that he was invited by Mr. Tong to his think tank okay. to make a speech. Mr. Tong was expecting support. Instead, Lord Goldsmith said exactly what I just said. He said that normally we look to governments to uphold or whether they break the rule or undermine the rule of law. And merely break, having lawbreakers is, is not undermining the rule of law if normal system of justice is carried out. We look to how the government handles the lawbreakers. So it's quite interesting that Mr. Tong didn't get the speech he bargained for. <laughs> he got one that makes total sense, that for the most part, it's the government that we expect to be upholding the rule of law and carrying out its duties in a way that respects the rule of law. And respecting the rule of law includes respecting basic rights and justice. And that lawbreakers as such are not typically, they're breaking the law, but they may not be undermining the rule of law unless it's on a grand scale. And when it's most often on a grand scale are things like cronyism and corruption. And note, that also involves the government because it, then it means the system of law is breaking down in the face of uh, connections between business elite and government officials and so on. So protesters as such don't pose as big a risk. Now, it's interesting. When I wrote a commentary on this in the South China Morning Post, I, was, I got more hate mail comments after that comment than anything else I've done. So one has to appreciate that the public sort of buys this argument that these guys are unruly. But being unruly or even breaking the law may not pose as big a risk as the thing they're actually protesting. Well, Michael Davis, thank you very much indeed. And we'll be back after the break. If you want to watch RTHK TV, it's very simple. As long as you live in the signal coverage area and use an external set-top box or IDTV, simply perform an auto-tuning of your TV channels. If this is unsuccessful, please ask your building management office to check if the building's public antenna can receive RTHK TV signals. You can also download the RTHK Screen mobile app to enjoy RTHK TV programs. Yeah,就開始表決。In the wake of Wednesday morning's attack on the LegCo building, Britain's Channel 4 TV aired a report in which an alleged gang member said that triads had been paid to infiltrate the student movement and increase the level of violence. Others point out that there are indisputably some hotheads among the protesters. Tellingly, perhaps the protesters themselves don't know the individuals involved and say that before the Wednesday attack, not one piece of glass was shattered 
during more than 50 days of occupation. Both pro-government and pro-democracy parties have been quick to condemn the violence. It happened in the early hours of Wednesday morning. For the first time since the Umbrella Movement began, protesters attacked and damaged the LegCo complex. They appear to have been incited by online claims of the controversial copyright bill, dubbed the online version of the Article 23 anti-subversion law, was likely to be passed that day in LegCo. In fact, this bill is not due for discussion until next year. After breaking the glass windows, the masked protesters, unknown to others at the scene, fled, leaving other longer-term occupiers to face the police. Student organisers were ambivalent about this action, but they did condemn the irresponsibility of the perpetrators in fleeing the scene. We're quite disappointed with it, and we need to condemn the activists who do not bear the responsibility. Lawmaker Fernando Zhang had tried to stop the mass protesters, but in vain. It makes the next step for this campaign more difficult because uh, people think that your action involves violence. By Friday, police had arrested more than 10 individuals aged between 17 and 54 for charges including criminal damage and access to a computer with criminal or dishonest intent. However, some protesters say that not only was the violence out of character, they believe undercover police were actually at the scene. Terry, who's been here since the occupation began, says he can spot police officers by their build, clothes and hair, even though their faces were mostly covered. The police have not denied deploying plainclothes officers at the scene, but said they were there to safeguard public order. Long-time occupiers remain suspicious that the most aggressive of the outsiders were known to no one, and say they did try to stop the violence. Some of the attackers were individuals who've been traced back to the Mong Kok protest site, including a purported member of the Civic Passion Group. Pro-government newspapers had a field day with the violence in their morning editions. For pro-government lawmakers, it was a windfall. Many protesters feel that this event will have increased public negativity about the movement. The most recent Hong Kong University public opinion program poll shows that around 80% of those interviewed feel it's time to end the occupation and 40% believe another strategy is needed. Even supporters like Jimmy Lai and former Governor Chris Patton, who spoke to a United States congressional panel on Thursday, suggest it could be time to look for new strategies. A proposal also made by Occupy leader Chan Kin Man. Actually, we are like bearing up the 
uh, responsibility as um, you may say one of the organizers um, to like uh, make the movement um, to end with something uh, achieved. On Monday, the Shanghai Hong Kong Stock Connect opened with much self-congratulation, but so far it's hardly boosted the Hong Kong market. Most of the money's gone one way towards Shanghai, and critics are saying that linking the two markets is not a gift to Hong Kong, but a platform for fulfilling China's ambitions in the international financial markets. After 15 months of uh, uh, confidential discussions and efforts and lobbying, and after about uh, seven months of overall market preparation, we are finally here today witnessing we're ready to launch Shanghai Hong Kong Connect. It is the first time that investors in Shanghai and Hong Kong markets, be them individuals or institutions, are able to trade listed shares in the other market through their own local brokers and exchange. The through train scheme marks China's most extensive move to open up its capital accounts. The idea is to draw China's financial markets closer to the world markets, an objective very much in line with China's aspiration for greater global economic influence. Hong Kong, meanwhile, aspires to consolidate its role as the main gateway to China's financial markets. There is also a strong element here of fostering growing integration of Hong Kong into the mainland, a process that spreads well beyond the financial sector. Stock Connect facilitates the gradual opening of the mainland capital account and the internationalization of the RMB as an investment currency for global investors, thereby reinforcing Hong Kong's position as an international financial center and a premier offshore RMB hub. The main purpose for this Shanghai Hong Kong Connect uh, is actually for uh, to enhancement of Hong Kong as an offshore renminbi center. Uh, it's not for uh, stock market speculations, not like many people uh, still thinking of, uh, because uh, the Shanghai Hong Kong Connect uh, allows um, fund flow from uh, offshore uh, to China. The model gives international investors direct access to Shanghai stocks for the first time and gives mainland investors more opportunities to buy Hong Kong stocks. Trading quotas, which may be reviewed, limit purchases of Chinese stocks for Hong Kong and foreign investors to 13 billion yuan per day in over 500 counters that form part of this scheme. Mainland investors have a daily limit of 10 billion yuan for their purchases of Hong Kong listed shares. However, individual investors in China are not qualified to buy Hong Kong shares unless they deposit at least 500,000 yuan with their brokers. There is uh, you know, developing you know, an outflow of money uh, both you know, at the private sector as well as at the state sector, uh, as well as private individuals. So I think you know, this uh, will help uh, the uh, you know, ultimate 
total relaxation of capital accounts. And obviously, uh, from the point of view of, of uh, renminbi as a reserve currency, uh, it has now you know, taken the second step of being an investment currency, which is necessary before you get to reserve currency. However, since the launch of the scheme, the bulk of trades have flowed out of Hong Kong into Shanghai and not the other way around. Moreover, share prices have, if anything, dipped. But this is not for want of trying on the part of the authorities who have lifted restrictions on the amount of yuan Hong Kong residents can buy on a daily basis. And on the mainland side, foreigners have been granted a waiver of capital gains tax. The eventual introduction of this link followed a high-profile meeting between Hong Kong Chief Executive Liang Zhenying and President Xi Jinping, which prompted much talk of this scheme being a gift by the mainland to Hong Kong. But it seems to be a gift that involves people here doing all the buying. One reason for a lack of enthusiasm by mainland investors could be the high valuation of the Hong Kong stocks compared with Shanghai-listed counters. In mainland, um, the speculators or the stock market uh, investors are still very fond of those small caps or with uh, those with uh, some concept stocks, but not the uh, very uh, mainstream or uh, the index stocks. It remains to be seen how this scheme will pan out. But as matters stand, it does appear to have attracted the favorable attention of large institutional investors. Whether this enthusiasm will catch fire among smaller traders is far from clear. And I'm afraid that's all we have time for this week. Don't forget, if you miss part of the show, want to see more, or even see it again, you can go to the RTHK website. And if you feel so inclined, you can even chat to us on our Facebook page. We'll see you at the same time next week. Goodbye.